Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 17 of Everything Compliance, the only roundtable podcast that focuses exclusively on compliance. This is a post-Harvey edition part one. In this part one, Jonathan Armstrong considers the UK government's response to GDPR, and he rants about idiots on social media. Jay Rosen brings a detailed discussion of the differences between voluntary monitoring, contrasting it with the standards under ISO 37001. Jay rants about the Patriots' loss in his season over. Next week, we'll have Mike Volkoff and Matt Kelly. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back for another episode of Everything Compliance, the top compliance podcast involving compliance professionals around. The Everything Compliance Podcast panel includes Jay Rosen. Jay is the Vice President of Business Development and Corporate Monitoring at Affiliated Monitors. Mike Volkoff, one of the top FCPA commentators and practitioners around and Chief Executive of the Volkoff Law Group. Matt Kelly, founder and CEO of Radical Compliance, and Jonathan Armstrong, our UK colleague, an experienced lawyer with Cordery Compliance in London. Gentlemen, uh, welcome. It's been too long, and I can't wait to hear what you have to say in our rants today. So we're going to get it started right away with uh, Jay Rosen. Jay, you've been thinking about and talking about uh, voluntary monitoring. I was wondering if you might be able to explain what that is and why it's important for the compliance profession. Sure. Uh, Hello, everybody. And Tom, uh, thanks for uh, having me on. Um, I'm actually going to take a look at this. Um, I'm looking, uh, I'm still feeling the after effects of the uh, big boxing match in Vegas a couple weeks ago. So I'm going to say in this corner, we have ISO 37001. And in the other corner, we have a very capable uh, opponent in voluntary marketing. And uh, as we know, at the end of last Mar- uh, last August, uh, pay-per-view created a multi-million dollar payday by pitting undefeated boxer Floyd Mayweather Jr. against mixed martial artist Conor McGregor. And what was anticipated to be a throwaway bout like Rocky Balboa facing Apollo Creed, I am told it turned into an interesting contest that surely lined the pockets of pay-per-view vendors, Vegas odds makers, as well as the two combatants. In a similar unconventional face-off, I would like to pit the new anti-bribery standard ISO 37001 versus voluntary ethics and compliance monitoring. At first, this might seem like a potential mismatch as one of the solutions, the ISO 37001, is an anti-bribery management system standard, which is designed to help an organization establish, implement, maintain, and improve an anti-bribery compliance program. While voluntary monitoring is a more exacting tool that can be used in multiple scenarios to provide an independent assessment of a company's ethics and compliance program, as well as its readiness to deal with potential instances of bribery and corruption. 
Well, much has been written about the new standard and companies such as Walmart and Microsoft have announced plans to seek this certification. Many in the ethics and compliance community question the efficacy of the ISO 37001 standard and how this will ensure that a company's ethics and compliance program is sufficient to withstand compliance risks. In a nutshell, the standard addresses bribery by an organization or by its personnel or business associates acting on the organization's behalf or for its benefit. It also targets bribery of the organization or of its personnel or business associates in relations to the organization's activities. The organization must implement a series of measures and controls in a reasonable and proportionate manner to help prevent, detect, and deal with bribery, including having an anti-bribery policy, management leadership and commitment and responsibility, personal controls and training, risk assessments, due diligence on projects and business associates, financial, commercial, and contractual controls, reporting, monitoring, investigation, and review, and finally, corrective action and continual improvement. While many of these tools are currently used by companies all over the world, skeptics questions that the ISO 37001 runs the risk of being another check-the-box uh, anti-corruption solution. In Tom Fox's August podcast series, One Month to Better Continuous Improvement, he had the chance to speak with my affiliated monitor colleagues, Vin Siani and Eric Feldman, to learn a bit more about voluntary monitoring. They addressed how a company could gain multiple and intersecting compliance goals through voluntary monitoring. These are goals that are laid out in the 2012 FCPA Guidance and Department of Justice Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs, commonly referred to as evaluation, as both continuous improvement and analysis and remediation of non-compliant conduct under the FCPA, the Foreign Correct Practices Act. Voluntary monitoring is an approach where a company uses the service of an independent monitor to find out how their program is working and to be able to use data with government regulators and law enforcement to demonstrate that their due diligence in creating and continuously improving their corporate ethics and compliance program. There are at least two different distinct types of voluntary monitoring that I'd like to talk about. The first instance is what we refer to as reactive proactivity. Now, while that may seem like an oxymoron, this is a situation where a company determines that it has potential compliance violation and they bring in an independent monitor to address the issue. The genesis for this type of monitoring is usually some event, such as a whistleblower report, internal report or investigation, or a detect control picking up information which warrants additional investigation. An example might be where one business unit has a problem they're worried about that might be uh, prevalent in other business units and they want to take an assessment. Another situation could be if there's a problem in a sector or an industry and they know that that industry is being scrutinized by law enforcement or regulators, the usual sweep that's spoken about, and they fully expect the regulators or law enforcement to be coming and looking at them. Yet another area could be in a geographic area such as China or a similarly high-risk region. 
in uh, direct uh, opposition to the reactive proactivity, we have a second type of monitorship, which is more a little bit more benign, and we refer to this as the independent assessment. This type of monitorship is where a company wants to have a true independent come in to kick the tires and test the quality of the program to see how impactful the company's compliance program is operating. It could assess a variety of issues such as compliance internal controls to test the benchmarking of a company's compliance program. And this type of voluntary monitorship the examiner is not focusing on one issue or region as laid out in the first example, but it's a much broader proposition. This scenario allows an independent to perform the assessment. My colleague Vin shared that it's often difficult for companies and for compliance officers and their teams to self-assess the strengths of their programs. They just have difficulty doing that. It's just not an easy thing for them to get their hands on asking the questions, how good a job am I doing? But by having an independent come in with no skin in the game, with complete objectivity, neutrality, and no judgments or prejudging the work, they can look at the company's program, assess the quality program, the makeup of the team, and the organizational structure where it's placed. All of these things are part of the voluntary approach. The benefits of both types of voluntary monitoring are multifold. Fold. And certain, it certainly helps to meet the control testing requirement found in the evaluation. The 2012 FCPI guidance states, an organization should take the time to review and test its controls, and it should think critically about its potential weaknesses and risk areas. This type of an approach can provide benefits if a company finds itself in FCPA hot water, as both the DOJ and the SEC will, quote, give meaningful credit to thoughtful efforts to create a sustainable compliance program if a problem is later discovered. Similarly, undertaking proactive evaluations before a problem strikes can lower the applicable penalty range under the U.S. sentencing guidelines. Yet the guidance intones a business reason for the use of such techniques as voluntary monitoring when it's stated, Although the nature and the frequency of proactive evaluations may vary depending on the size and complexity of an organization, the idea behind such efforts is the same, continuous improvement, improvement and sustainability. Eric Feldman pointed out yet another reason for such a proactive approach. It can actually create an administrative record which a company can use to demonstrate it has remedied problems. Equally important, it establishes that the company is maintaining a commitment to doing business and compliance. The key is the independence of the monitoring personnel so they can present an accurate, unbiased opinion. Eric presented the example of a company which had been debarred by, US by the U.S. government and needed to demonstrate an acceptable level of compliance to get off the list. He and his team performed a baseline assessment and from there developed a remediation plan, which the company implemented. After six months or so, he and his team came back to assess the progress made. 
From this follow-up assessment, they generated a report which was used in submission to the government, which noted, we are now ready to be a responsible contractor as defined by the federal acquisition regulations, and we propose an administrative agreement with continued monitoring that would move it from voluntary monitoring over to mandatory monitoring for a period of three years. So while the newcomer ISO 37001 has admirable goals of helping to standardize global companies' preparedness and ability to deal with corruption risk and the appropriate response, at the end of the day, the program is only as good as those who are implementing and certifying the program. Voluntary monitoring is a more precise tool and an excellent technique through which a company can engage in continuous improvement. Nonetheless, it has many other benefits as well, including regulatory and evidence and criminal investigation if needed under anti-corruption laws such as the FCPA. The bottom line is that all those scenarios might justify a company to engage in a voluntary monitorship to come in and do a complete ethics and compliance and cultural assessment or audit of their organization. Both solutions offer the advantage of having an independent resource assess the current state of a company's ethics and compliance posture, and thus, in the spirit of continuous improvement, each of these solutions merit consideration. While the ISO 37001 seems to be more of a one-size-fits-all proposition, voluntary monitoring differentiates itself by addressing company and industry-specific risk areas, which can then be shored up to demonstrate increased compliance, self-remediation, and used as a resultant record, which can help a company gain tangible benefits and negotiation with regulatory bodies. Anyone uh, have any questions for Jay? Jay, uh, hey, this is Mike, and uh, my you know, my question and uh, sort of my reaction to ISO 370101 uh, is, you know, I try to imagine, let's say I'm certified, uh, but nonetheless, I go in, I, you know, suffer violations, whatever, of the FCPA, and I'm sitting in front of the DOJ, and I say, oh, well, you know, you guys, you should let us off, because we have, we were certified by ISO you know, ISO 37001. And my reaction is they won't really give a damn about that uh, in that in that sort of interaction. I mean, do you do you share that same view or do you think that it uh, really does give you some leverage when you're talking to the Justice Department or the SEC or both? Uh, great question, Mike. I, I think I would um, share the, the skepticism that you do that um, – you know, I, I think that the standard itself is too broad and the hurdles right. to meet the standard are not really substantive enough. And I think um, I think we've often said you only get one chance to go in in front of the DOJ and represent yourself. And I don't uh, personally think that the ISO uh, 37001 is going to, uh, you know, be robust enough to uh, really move the needle with uh, with justice. The other, the, other, the other the other thing I, I and I'm sorry, I, Jonathan, I just wanted to follow up and make yeah, one other right. point and then car carry it over to you. 
The other point I wanted to make is that, you know, what I'm seeing in sort of more mature or larger programs is a real either either they're internally doing this or like you're saying they're they're outsourcing it to let's say voluntary monitoring is that um, they're starting to build more in-house capabilities to audit and monitor and making sort of the compliance function take on more of a role in that. Um, that's very, you know, labor intensive, resource intensive. And I think that what you're offering and what you're talking about is actually maybe a more effective way and in the end maybe a more persuasive way uh, to because I think there's sort of certain conflicts that may come up if a compliance officer is monitoring their own activities or the business's activities for which they're responsible. So I think there's something of value to having an independent view come in and just say, look, tell us the truth. What's going on? What do you see? And report to us and flag things for us. So um, uh, I think it's an interesting concept to try to, you know, uh, educate compliance people on and companies, I think. So uh, just a thought in terms of the independence. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's one of the key things that we usually, um, you know, a- end up focusing on. The fact that uh, I'm sure no compliance officer has any ugly codes of conduct that they've written. So that impartiality, to your point, is like, how can you effectively judge um, how well you're doing if you're the one who created the code of conduct or if you're the one who's doing the monitoring? So that independence really allows you to get um, an arm's length uh, appraisal of how you're doing. And, um, you know, the one thing people may say is, well, how is an outside consultant going to know my business as well as we do? And, um, you know, you're going to hopefully deal with a monitor who not only has industry expertise, but has the ability, you know, to put together the right team to come in and um, look at the right issues, whether there it's going to be a broad, um, you know, a, a broad look at your organization's effectiveness, or if we look at the debarment issue, you're coming in to look at a very narrowly defined uh, scope on which you're going to opine. Jonathan? Yeah, I, I was just going to make a quick point following on from Mike's first point, really, which was just that I think the answers may be slightly different in the UK because I think there's merit in both the ISO standard and what Jay's describing as sort of ex, um, you know, informal, involuntary, voluntary monitorship um, in terms of failure to prevent. So I think some sort of process is likely to give you some credit, could even be a defense to a failure to prevent action if you've followed, you know, if you've designed your program to also follow the MOJ guidance over here. So it might be a slightly nuanced report. I, I, I don't think it's a get out of jail free card, but it but it might uh, it might help. Oh hey uh, Jonathan, I think it's certainly a sign of a commitment to compliance. My my thing is that I, what I don't see it as is some panacea out there. 
no, um, that right. there's still always, you know, there's still laboring hard work that a compliance program has to do to be effective. And, you know, it's sort of a false sense of hope. And that's what bothers me about the certification process. Uh, it's my understanding that the UK government has published some intentions, uh, what a great uh, British English phrase, around GDPR, <laughs> and that uh, you and your firm, Quarterly Compliance, have taken a look at the intentions. I was wondering if you might be able to tell us what you've been able to, to divine from the intentions and what companies might start to do uh, at this point. Yeah, happy to, Tom. And um, the UK is not alone in this. Ireland has also published a sort of similar statement of intent. Theirs is probably a bit uh, longer. But the UK government has sort of almost pre-trailed a bill that is expected before the House of Lords uh, any, any minute now to start the legislative journey. And and the, the But the situation in the UK versus Ireland is more complicated, of course, because of Brexit. So to backtrack slightly, the uh, General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, comes in across the EU on May 25th, 2018. It isn't strictly necessary for each of the member states within the EU to introduce domestic legislation unless their local law uh, re requires it. So it's of what's called a me uh, direct, direct effect. But uh, most jurisdictions, I think, are taking the opportunity to introduce domestic legislation, which might add bits on to the general GDPR framework. So Germany, for example, has already brought its uh, federal bill through its parliament. Hungary has tabled a bill this week. And the UK is in a similar position. But because of Brexit, they also need to make sure that GDPR-like provisions apply in UK law that would withstand any eventual withdrawal from the EU. So this, the, the bill that we're going to get, my prediction is it will look pretty messy and pretty difficult to read because it's, it's almost written as if-then-but legislation. So if the UK withdraws from the EU, then nothing changes, I think, is going to be the broad scheme of it. So it takes some of the core principles of GDPR and tries to embed them into UK law. So some of these things that we've talked about on these podcasts before, like the right to be forgotten, which I think is a particularly problematical area of GDPR, like the changing definitions of consent, which are impactful in areas like internal investigations, particularly when organizations are looking at wrongdoing from employees. The wide definition of personal data, which causes issues to many US corporations with, generally speaking, PII being a narrow, narrow definition in the US versus a wide definition of personal data in the EU. The fact that subject access requests are free, which means that, for example, individuals who you suspect of bad behavior can ask you for a copy of the investigation into them, like we've seen in the Gurieva case uh, over here in the UK, and this process of data protection impact assessments. So again, for example, if I'm doing an internal investigation into wrongdoing and it involves European personal data, I'm going to have to go through a process first before I can start document collection to make sure that that is 
justified. So these, in many respects, are the um, almost the usual bits of GDPR. But in addition, the UK is trying to do some uh, other things as well. First of all, it's trying to look at data transfer between the UK and the US, anticipating a possible uh, withdrawal from the EU. So they're basically looking, I think, at some privacy shield type scheme that would work between the UK and the US, similar to the Swiss US privacy shield scheme that launched uh, this year as a sort of bilateral scheme rather than an EU to the US scheme. And then the other thing that I think is worth spending just a little bit of time on is some new criminal offences. Now, these would be unique to the uh, to the UK, but I think, again, have implications for compliance practitioners, both in terms of making sure that their corporations can comply with these provisions, but also making sure that in areas like internal investigations, we don't... Um, uh, commit criminal offences without without knowing, because obviously an investigation into wrongdoing that itself breaches the law has pretty serious ramifications. You know, you're unlikely to get uh, um, uh, any benefit of self-reporting, for example, if you've created a criminal offence in obtaining the information. So I thought it's wise maybe to look at three criminal offences specifically that are proposed by the new legislation briefly. So one of them is a new offence of intentionally or recklessly re-identifying individuals from anonymised or pseudonymised data. Uh, this would be a criminal offence and the proposal is that there would be an unlimited fine potentially for this criminal offence. And in areas like internal investigations, this is a possibility. So it could be, for example, that you get details of uh, some activity that's taken place when, let's say, four employees attended a meeting in Russia. And let's just say for these circumstances, somebody in Russia tells you that there were four employees in your uh, from your organization, but says, I refuse to identify who these individuals are. I am keeping their debt protection rights intact. And let's say you decide that you're going to take that, in this case, anonymized stream of data and identify who those four people from your business were by looking at, let's say, Amex travel records to work out who was in Russia on those given dates. Well, in that case, you could create, uh, you could commit this new criminal offense of uh, uh, de-anonymizing data that's given to you anonymously. Now, of course, the devil will be in the detail. We've, uh, we only know that this is a statement of intent, not a bill itself. So we'll have to watch out for how that offence can be committed. But bear in mind that if you're scoping out things like internal investigations, you'll need to watch out for this as a possibility. The second offence is an offence of altering records with intent to prevent disclosure following a subject access request. So we've talked about this before, but basically under GDPR and under the UK legislation, you can make a request for the data that an organisation holds on you 
free of charge and the organization has to reply within a month. So if I make a subject access request against my employer because I think that my employer suspects me of wrongdoing and I want my personnel file and the employer destroys memos from that file after I've made the request, then the employer in that situation can commit a criminal offence. And again, devil will be in the detail, but one to watch out for. For most corporations, I think they will need to extend litigation hold type procedures to cover subject access requests. But that will also mean that they'll need a, a process to identify when they receive a, a subject access request, bearing in mind that a subject access request can be made to any employee in the business it can be made over Twitter. It can be made over Facebook. So they'll need to make sure that their procedures are good and proper to make sure that they get that information to the center of the business quickly so they can uh, issue a, a litigation hold type um, memo to everyone in the business and, uh, and freeze data. And then the third and final public uh, a criminal offense that I wanted to talk about was um, there's already an offence under the current UK Data Protection Act of unlawfully obtaining data. And they want to widen this offence to include retaining data against the wishes of the data controller. So let's say, for example, again, to use it in an internal investigation context, let's say, for example, you're investigating, I don't know, um, some wrongdoing in a remote country and you want to know who was in a particular hotel at a particular time and somehow you managed to get a list from the hotel of who was checked into the hotel. And then let's say, for example, uh, you, uh, you use that to support bits of your internal investigation and the hotel get worried because they think, oh, we've disclosed uh, details of our guests and maybe we shouldn't have. So the hotel write to you, send you an email and say, actually, we shouldn't have given you that uh, roster of people in the hotel. Um, please destroy it. If you don't destroy it, not only do you likely breach data protection law um, in, in, and open yourself up to an administrative fine, which, as you know, potentially is 4% of global revenue, but it looks like you also commit this new criminal offence, the extension of the existing, it's technically known as a Section 55 offence. So uh, that's a really quick run through of what we expect to be quite a long bill. My prediction will be it'll have, I guess, more than 100 sections. I think it'll be quite involved. I think it'll be quite difficult to read and follow. So that's, you know, a, very much a quick summary. But I think all sorts of issues for compliance officials to be thinking about. Bear in mind, of course, that the go live date for GDPR is, is not that long away now. So uh, as I've said, the go live date for GDPR is 25 May 2018. The UK government's intention is that their new legislation, the new Data Protection Act, will also be enforced 25 May 2018. That might be ambitious, but that's only 259 days away. And that's 259 days, including Thanksgiving, Passover, Christmas, weekends. So working days 
there's probably less than 200 left and 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 you know we're trying to make sure that we comply with some legislation that isn't even printed yet as a draft let alone in its final form so challenges ahead message is clear for compliance professionals get up to speed with the drafts i think he rendered the sermon hey, hey, Jonathan, this is Matt. I had a question for you. Um, yeah. I saw something about the GDPR earlier this week, something I read on the Internet. So, of course, it must be true. Um, <laughs> but uh, an item that uh, there is a rumor going around now about increased compliance officer liability for GDPR programs and the failures thereof. Uh, and I know that here in the United States, we have a lot of fears about CCO liability in the financial sector for insufficient programs and whatnot. I just wanted to know, you know, when people see this sort of glib shorthand thing shotgunned on Twitter or LinkedIn, that there's compliance officer liability around GDPR, like how true is this or w how much should people be worried here? Yeah, um, my my really honest answer to you is I did see the article. I I bookmarked it to return to it, and uh, I've had GDPR live, if you like, today. In that we've got a client with a with a genuine security breach, so my attention's been on that instead. But bear in mind the fact that the existing legislation does have wide definitions. So if you look at the UK Data Protection Act, for example, we already have the potential, uh, I'm, I'm stressing potential, of liability to uh, for individuals for data protection offences. And normally, uh, they are um, people who are corporate officers, if you like, but not exclusively. So, if you're a data protection geek, that's section 61 of the UK Data Protection Act. And it says where an offence has been committed by a corporation, if there is what's called consent or connivance, a phrase which I particularly like, uh, consent, connivance or neglect on behalf of any director, manager, secretary or similar officer, then that individual can be guilty of the same offence as the corporation. Now, that type of uh, clause, if you like, um, from my understanding, comes originally from health and safety legislation. And in health and safety legislation, we have got that threshold down fairly low. So, for example, in one case, the manager of a bookshop goes home early to pick up his kids or whatever. He throws the keys to a store assistant and says, I need to run, you lock up. And whilst that store assistant has the keys, there's a, a fire inspection and there are books blocking the fire exit. And that individual is prosecuted because he was the de facto manager of the store on the basis that he had the keys in his hands. So from a data privacy point of view, there is a possibility of somebody like a compliance officer being prosecuted, but it would have to be, I think, for either a neglect or this consent or connivance. So if, for example, the DPO said, yeah, do it, then there's a possibility of liability. 
But bear in mind the fact that the whole intention of GDPR is that the DPO you know, doesn't really do stuff. The DPO supervises stuff. So it's back to that whole debate that we've had you know, with Roy Snell and others at SCCE about you know, is the compliance officer the policeman or is he one of the crowd? And, and I think it would be difficult to bring a prosecution under a, a against a DPO because of um, you know personal liability because of something that the corporation should have done. Now, just to touch on one other point, though, Matt. Remember, this is where it where it gets slightly confusing. GDPR creates two officials, a data protection officer and possibly for U.S. corporations in particular, a data protection representative, a DPR. So where the corporation doesn't have a foothold in the EU, but targets or profiles EU citizens, then that corporation has to appoint a DPR and the DPR is likely to be liable for the defaults of the corporation, particularly where the corporation doesn't pay a fine or whatever. So DPRs, I think, are at risk. DPOs might not be at risk. So gentlemen, on to rants. Michael Volkoff, you always have lots of rants, most of which you can't talk about. So why don't you rant for us on the rants you can rant about? Well, uh, and and this is an old rant, but I guess, I guess it, it still applies. What you know, and I, I'm sorry that I didn't uh, make it to the uh, book review of the Chicken Shit Club, uh, but that sort of got my uh, my you know ranting blood up uh, when I read the book. And what what still bothers me is, um, you know, we've had the Yates Memorandum. We've had now uh, the Attorney General Sessions, who um, you know talked about the importance of uh, individual prosecutions and deterrence, and yet uh, you know what we see coming out of the, uh, the Justice Department, just like uh, the Justice Department before, is you know really nothing in terms of individual prosecutions and going after people who really should be. Uh, prosecuted. I go back to, and I'm sure everybody has a case that may be their pet peeve, but I go back to uh, the Avon case. I go back to Vimplecom in the FCPA space where, I mean, it just uh, is begging for, um, you know, individuals to be prosecuted. And, uh, you know, so far the only sort of appreciable difference that I can point to has been the uh, auto industry cases, where in the GM case, nobody was prosecuted, but then in the VW case and the Takata case, uh, there were individuals who were prosecuted. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, and meanwhile, we have the antitrust division, which is charging people, and they charge on average uh, three individuals for every corporation that's prosecuted. And uh, I just don't understand why the division, the antitrust division can do that and other parts of the Justice Department can't. So that's my rant. Um, I'm not speaking on behalf of any of my clients. I can definitely tell you that. Uh, but it just is something as a former prosecutor I look at and it just seems like 
you know, I, I just don't, I, I don't have an answer for it. So Matt Kelly, we had a great event this week that you're ready to rant on. I am. Um, I am going to start with a brand new issue for rants. That would be the Equifax data breach that happened or was disclosed uh, just yesterday on September 7th, uh, although the breach itself happened at the end of July and exposed the personal information of at least 143 million Americans. Early prediction I will make right now is that number is going to go up. I base that just on old experience that companies never seem to get the scope of these breaches right the first time out. But what was stolen were names, addresses, birth dates, social security numbers, um, driver's license numbers. And then the breach alone is going to be an enormous problem. Uh, But we also have news that in between the breach being discovered at the end of July and the breach being disclosed to the world on September 7th, three senior Equifax executives sold company stock that they owned uh, on the open market and made, I think, $1.8 million, or they sold $1.8 million worth of stock. Uh, The company says that they sold this stock before they knew of the breach, although the sales happened in early August and the breach happened in July. And suddenly we're getting into a whole lot of what's the straight story. We do not know. So right off the bat, I'm starting to wonder about Equifax's ability to document out and show the record what actually happened. Why was this taking so long to disclose? When did these people sell the stock? And by the way, one of the people accused of this is the CFO of the Equifax. Um, Also, aside from the Equifax-specific issues that are raised here, I think this gets to a really broader question of when are we going to come to grips with some accountability for for cybersecurity around here? Uh, This is going to be an enormous cybersecurity problem. Hackers will be able to compose synthetic identities where they use the name and address and birthday of Jay Rosen, but the social security number of Matt Kelly. So companies would more easily think, kind of looks like Jay Rosen. It probably is. Why don't we just assume it's him when it's not? And they could do this until the cows come home. Uh, This is an inconvenience to other companies. It's an inconvenience to citizens. Um, I guess now we're supposed to change our names and birthdays and addresses regularly, maybe, in addition to our passwords. I don't know. But Mm -hmm. um, just the other day, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board came out and said it will be looking at audit firms to see how much they press clients on cybersecurity issues. And there were some people who said, whoa, 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 what has this got to do with corporate finance? This really, why is cybersecurity an auditing issue? This is why. Because somehow, someway, we have got to come to grips with this because these problems are only getting worse and they are getting worse for more and more parties simultaneously. And so I, uh, now I'm wound up, so I'm going to go and pour myself a stiff drink or something. But uh, that, that's my rant, and I think we're going to hear an awful lot about Equifax over the coming months. Can I put chin on your rant? In, in, is that allowed, Tom? Is that under, is that allowed under the rules? Follow on um, rant square. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I took a brief look at this today as well, and I think that um, I think you're right in a lot of what you said from what I've seen. But I think there's also some other bizarre aspects to this as well. I mean, 
uh, credit where credit's due, I think Equifax have got a dedicated website. Of course, if you've got 28 days, you've got the chance to do that. And there is a video from the CEO apologizing personally, although some of that looks like it's designed for Equifax employees rather than the victims. I wonder if it's a film that's been adapted to a different purpose. I don't know. We'll find out soon, I guess. But the other thing that seems to me is slightly odd is they're offering identity theft protection for a year, which is pretty standard, I think, for breaches. But you have to give more of your personal data to get that credit monitoring. So you have to re-input your social security details. A, that obviously presumably means that the offer is only available to US citizens, where my understanding is that those affected by the breach include people in Canada and the UK as well. And B, I just wonder, would you be that joyous about inputting more details into an organization that's just lost everything they had on you? I, I don't know. Um, the other thing that surprises me slightly is I have seen that there are um, allegations that when you get through that portal bit, you then have to sign a waiver saying that in exchange for your one-year credit monitoring, you agree not to participate in any eventual class action against Equifax. And I'm wondering from a UK point of view, whether that would be seen as an unfair bargain. You know, you've had your details breached potentially. You're being offered a year's credit monitoring, which on the open market, depending on which policy they're offering, might be 300 sterling, let's say. But is that uh, an equal bargain? And would that pass the test in um, we have legislation like unfair contract terms uh, legislation, where obviously you're dealing with a consumer and you're dealing with a consumer in pain. So I think there are several other legal questions to be answered. The other thing, of course, to say is that the UK data protection regulator, the ICO, announced uh, almost immediately that they were on the case. They'd asked Equifax for details of the UK nationals involved. Now, currently, under current legislation, the maximum fine for Equifax in the UK, if it were found to be culpable or negligent in this breach, would be uh, 500,000 sterling. We have had similar cases where there has been hacking and the ICO has levied a penalty, particularly when things like patches weren't up to date on the server. But so 500,000 sterling now, post GDPR, the potential fine is $108 million. So we go from 500,000 sterling to $108 million. So I wonder if that emphasizes how substantial the changes under GDPR are as well. So Jay Rosen, do you have a rant for us? I do, short and it's sweet. Uh, about three years and 11 months ago, the New England Patriots were summarily embarrassed by the Kansas City Chiefs 41 to 14 on national TV. After this humiliation, the Patriots used this motivation, got their house in order, and went on a run to ultimately defeat the Seattle Seahawks in Super Bowl 49. On the following Wednesday, Coach Bill Belichick sounded like a broken record in response to all reporter questions he was asked, and he only had one answer We're on to Cincinnati. So in that spirit, I offer the refrain for 2017 after one day of the NFL football season. We're on to New Orleans. <laughs> 
So, gentlemen, uh, with that, thank you. Hello again. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast, as it would help get the word out about the only roundtable podcast in compliance. Also, it would help on our rankings. I hope you'll join us next week for part two of this special two-part post-Harvey episode on everything compliance. In part two, Matt Kelly talks about the SEC under Jay Clayton, and Mike Volkoff takes a look at the intersection of antitrust compliance and anti-corruption compliance. It's a fascinating exploration. Once again, I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance, a part of the Compliance Podcast Network, and I hope you'll join us next week for part two of Everything Compliance, the post-Harvey edition. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.